0: This morning, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 2. As you know, we've been in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was several years ago that my wife and I came across a study, a study of research. And the research found that biblical literacy was at an all-time low. Now, at first glance, I thought biblical literacy in general was at an all-time low. But as you dug deeper into the research, it became painfully obvious that biblical literacy inside the church was at an all-time low. These were men and women that come to church every Sunday. These are men and women who give and are active. And the survey came back and the study and the research came back that they didn't know a thing about the biblical story. No wonder our world and our culture is in the condition it is today. And so about a year ago, we decided, well, we we here at Coral Ridge, we are going to know the biblical story. And so we started in Genesis. And each week, we looked at the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. And just a few weeks ago, we made our way to the end of the Old Testament. But each week, we are making the case that all of the stories and all of the figures in the scriptures point to one story, the story of Jesus Christ. That all the stories of the Bible point to one grand story, and that your story personally and the story of this world will never make sense until we see it through the lens of the biblical story. But before we move on to the New Testament, and we will next week with the first Sunday of Advent, and we'll open up the word of God to Matthew, we've been looking at recapping the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And we've said that the story of the Bible can be broken up into four parts. If you've ever been confused about what the story of the Bible is all about, it begins in the garden at creation. God establishes his kingdom in the garden, and he appoints humanity to be the co regents, to rule the world, to have dominion over it. And he gives us purpose and dominion, creates us in his image. And then in Genesis 3, we rebel, is what is known as the fall. And all of the sin and all of the brokenness comes into the world. And we are estranged from God and estranged from paradise in the garden. But the story continues with the promise of redemption. And all of the stories of the Old Testament point forward to the day where Messiah would come to bring redemption to the king's people and to the kingdom of earth on earth as it is in heaven. And then lastly, and we'll end here this morning, by looking at that final part of the story of the Bible, that's part of the story known as the consummation, the consummation of the kingdom. You see, most people, most Bible-believing Christians think the story of the Bible and the story of God ends with the story of Jesus coming 2,000 years ago, saving people from their sins. And the whole goal of the rest of the story of history is to get saved and get to heaven. And God basically cleans his hands and washes his hands of this world, wanting nothing to do with it anymore. But that's not how the story ends. The story ends with how God began. He begins the story in the garden and he ends the story in the garden city in Revelation. And everything in between is God redeeming his people and promising that the Messiah would come the first time in grace and the second time in glory to restore everything, to restore everything that is broken. That is the grand finale, not only of the Bible, but all of history, the consummation of the kingdom. Psalm 2 that we're going to read here this morning is a glimpse of the future. It's a glimpse of how the story will end. It's a coronation psalm. It is a psalm that announces that God, the King of heaven, is installing His King here on earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a declaration that God is sovereign And God is appointing his Messiah, his messianic king, to be the king of kings and lord of lords. The king that will fulfill all the promises of God. A king that is even greater than King David. This is the promise of the king and his kingdom. Psalm 2, all 12 verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed there is translated Messiah, against the Lord and his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits on the heavens, in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. And the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those You take refuge in him, and the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, know the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. You might have happened to stumble upon it, but over the last four years, there is a new series, not so new anymore, but a series on Netflix called The Crown. Came out in 2016, and it re- they release on Netflix a new season every year. And the Netflix series *The Crown* traces the very early years of Queen Elizabeth II, her rise and ascension to the throne, and all of the all of the turmoil that has come upon that family, all of the drama all of the all of the sagas that have come to her children and to her grandchildren it's a fascinating story traces her relationship with winston churchill and margaret thatcher through all of the wars and through all of the drama which has been part of the house of windsor what's more interesting than even this series which i highly recommend is recently it was revealed that it's one of the highest rating shows or movies on Netflix, and the individual that was writing the article and writing the review about how the the ratings for the crown are staggering was making the observation that it's no more popular than in America. And he says, isn't it ironic? A people in which their history of their country was founded on resisting the crown seems to be infatuated with it. He makes no conclusion, but I'd like to make this conclusion, that we as a people are obsessed with the crown. And the reason we are obsessed with the crown is deep inside of each one of us is a longing for the true king. Deep down inside of each one of us is a longing for a good king that would come to ensure that our story ends with a happily ever after. We all long for a king that will come to right all wrongs and to remove every tear from our eyes. We long for a king who makes all wrongs right and turns this world back right side up and restores it to what it was meant to be. Here in Psalm 2, we have such a glimpse. We have such a story and such a promise of how the story will end. Not only the story of the Bible, but the story of all of human history. The story of God the King in heaven appointing an earthly king, the Messiah, that will right all wrongs. And the promise being this, that whoever is found following the King will live happily ever after. What an immense hope in a hopeless world we have today. What can we learn about the end of the story and learn about the promise of the king and his kingdom from Psalm 2 this morning? The first thing I want you to see here in Psalm 2 is the rebellion. We are a rebellious people In verses 1, 2, and 3, David takes us back to the garden. He takes us back to that initial rebellion, and he communicates that we are a people who hate the king. We are a people that live in opposition to the king. And ever since Genesis 3, we have been living in rebellion. And David asks the question, He looks around and he sees people living in rebellion to the king. He sees people trying to resist the authority of the king and he asks the question, why? Verse one, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? The word vain there means utterly useless. He looks around at people who are trying to be the king. He looks around at people who are trying to plan their lives according to their wishes and their desires and trying to play the role of king. And David says it is utter uselessness. It's useless to live your life as if there is no king. Why in the world would you live your life as if there is no king? And then it says that the, that the rulers, they plot against the king. And then it says in verse 3, they burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords among us or from us. So they look at the cords. They look at how the, the king of heaven, the Lord, and his Messiah has restricted them. And the kings and the rulers of the earth say, Enough. I will not be bound by the Lord. I will not be bound by the Messiah. This idea in Hebrew of being tied up and being bound up was known as a yoke. And what the rulers and the kings of the world and the, of the earth are saying is I will not have anyone's yoke upon me. I am the king of the castle, I am the master of my own domain. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is what plagues us every single day. Saying, there will be no one who has authority over me. There will be no one that tells me what to do. It has been what we have been suffering from as a people from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. No one tells me what to do. No one tells me how to live. No one has authority over my life. And we will do everything in our power and our strength to break the bonds and to get the yoke from over us. You see, it's not that people have a disdain for God. 90% of North America believes there is a God. The disdain comes when we actually read our Bibles and we actually begin to see what the biblical God looks like and what the biblical God requires of us. That's when we say, I've had enough of this God. And that is our problem. Rebellion against the king, rebellion against our Lord and his Messiah. It is what has been plaguing us from the beginning. And David says, why? It is useless to resist and rebel against the Lord and his anointed. But the second thing that we see here is not only how we rebel against the king, but in verses four through nine, we see the king's response. How does the king respond against such rebellion? Well, verse four tells us something very surprising about God. It says he laughs. Verse four how does he respond to our rebellion? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Does that hurt your feelings? You know, I think of God as stoic. I think of God as unemotional. I think of God of not wavering at all. And here, David tells me God is laughing at me. And that hurts my feelings. You see, God looks down at us and all of our plans and all of our strategies and all of our desires to be our own king. And it says, God, all right, I'll just sit back and I will laugh at you. I will laugh at your plans and I will laugh at your strategies and I will laugh at your attempt to be the king of your life. The word laugh there in verse four literally means to mock. It's not nice, God. I don't like to be mocked. And that is precisely what God does to those that try to live their lives as if God does not exist. He laughs and then he mocks. And then what does he continue to do? After he mocks at our attempts to be the king of our lives, in verse 7, he says, this is what I will do. I will decree, in verse 7, and say, the Lord says to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Who is he speaking of? Who is the Lord's son? It's none other than Jesus himself. He says, Jesus, in the midst of a rebellious people who I cannot do anything but just laugh at, I will appoint you, my son, as the anointed one. I will appoint you as the Messiah. God is saying, I have appointed my son as the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And this is the promise for Jesus the king. The Lord goes on in verse eight to say, and ask for me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The Lord says, Jesus, my son, he will have dominion over the whole earth. I will give him authority from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just as God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, authority and dominion in the garden, but they blew it. He gives Jesus the authority. He gives Jesus the authority to be the king and to have dominion over all of the earth. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Jesus is given universal dominion and authority over the nations so that we would make not the foolish error once we come into submission to the King, to think for one second that there would be one thing, that there would be one square inch that would not be under the dominion of Jesus the Messiah, of Jesus the King. There would not be one area of this world, but listen to me, there would not be one area of your life that Jesus would not claim rightful authority over. That is a sobering word for us this morning, that there is not one square inch, not only of the world, but not one square inch of, the, of your life in which Jesus it does not possess authority of. Verse 9, what else is promised the Messiah? Verse 9 says that you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces. What is the Lord promising the Messiah? He is promising the ultimate final victory for Jesus the King. That in our lives, in whatever state you find yourself in this morning, know this... That Jesus will be victorious. That Jesus will win in the end. If you wanted to sum up the Bible in one statement, it is this, Jesus wins. And there is no Switzerland. (laughs) There is no neutrality. Jesus wins and you will either be for him or you will be against him. But make no mistake, Jesus has full authority over the heavens and the earth. And he will be victorious in the end. And that is the promise, the promise for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. You see, here is the word for us this morning. The word for us this morning is, yes, we have rebelled. But Jesus has been established on his throne. And he is making all things new. And the king offers a season of amnesty for all rebels who want to come home. No questions asked, no strings attached. He allows you to come home. He grants amnesty for all rebels who want to come home to the king. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. The refuge. The refuge found only in the king. There is refuge found in this king. In verse 12, it says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This word refuge at the end of verse 12 is the same word that is found in Psalm 46. God, you are our refuge and our strength. What is a refuge? A refuge is a strong tower. A refuge is a fortress. It is a place of utter stability and security in a world that cannot offer security and stability, the type of security and stability that your soul longs for. The Lord says, in my son, the Savior King, you alone can find refuge in that place. And what does it mean to find refuge? We're told in verses 10, 11, and 12, that you are to serve the king and rejoice in the king and kiss the king. There is no in-between. It is a call to ultimate surrender. You see, this is a king that is presented to you that has been established on the throne and will be victorious in the end that cannot, he refuses to be your consultant, He refuses to be simply an aid or an helper. And he refuses to be a king in which you simply acknowledge. This is a king in which you simply reject or you fully embrace. But there is no in-between with Jesus the king. Serve him. Rejoice in him. And kiss the King and what is the promise the promise is blessing blessing of the favor and the riches of God the righteousness of the kingdom can be yours in the person of Jesus Christ the promise for all those that find refuge in this King the anointed one of God all of the blessing and all the favor of the King and his kingdom Is granted to you. But you might be asking yourself this morning this king seems terrifying. (laughs) I mean, this, this king says that he's burning with fury. How do I know that this king will embrace me and not be angry with me? How do I know that I can come back to this king and him not be terrifying in his wrath? Well, that's the good news this morning. You see, God sent his son, this anointed Messiah would actually come in the flesh hundreds of years later in fulfillment of Psalm 2 and on the cross, Jesus the anointed one took the fury of God and took the angry wrath of God on the cross so that you and I can have the utter assurance that when he takes us back through faith alone in the anointed Messiah, he will not be angry, but he will call us his own son and his own daughter. A kiss of affection because we have kissed the King. It is a story and a picture of utter submission, a kiss of surrender, a kiss of submission where we lay down We lay down our rights, and we pay homage because we can't believe that we can actually find refuge in this King. Neil Armstrong and Boz Aldrin flew the famous mission Apollo 11 back in the summer of 1969. First men to set foot on the moon. And Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong recall as they traveled away from the earth and as they landed on the moon and they looked back at the earth, all they could see is a tiny little blue marble. And they looked to themselves and they said, to think, on that little globe have held all of the emperors and all of the presidents and all of the greatest feats of human history right there on that tiny little dot we call the earth. They had the view that God had. And you could think for a moment the pride that swelled up within them. You could think that here were two men that now had the view of God. I'm sure that they... they they beat their breast with pride. Who needs God? We're now sitting in the place of the gods. But that's not what happened. We're told that before they set foot on the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong got on their knees and they pulled out crackers and wine and they served each other communion. And then they read John fifteen five. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus is the king, and his kingdom has been established. And he will win in the end. That is not in dispute. The only thing in dispute this morning for those that are gathered here or watching at home is will you be a part of that kingdom? I feel a sense of urgency this morning. Last weekend I lost two classmates, 40 years of age, alive one day and gone the next. Life is but a vapor. Will you surrender to the king? Will you pay homage to him and take a knee and bow at his feet and may your life forever be changed. I don't care whether you're 16 tonight or you're 80, this morning or 86. It is never too late to bend the knee, to kiss the sun and surrender all. For after all, blessed, blessed are all those who take refuge in him.